somebody actually came up to me, a Russian agent, very briefly just whispered into my ears, you got to come home or else you're dead. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. This is part two of our chat with Jack Barsky, who spent 10 years as an undercover KGB agent in the United States. He's the longest surviving known member of the KGB illegals program that operated during the Cold War. In this episode, we talk about his first days in the US, his mission and how he managed to build his cover, enabling him to live and work as a US citizen. He honestly and candidly talks about the impact his secret life had on those closest to him and the moment of his arrest by the FBI. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air, although larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you get that sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Jack Barsky to our Cold War conversation. And and what what was the definition of your mission? What what were you supposed to do? Because you were going to arrive in the US as effectively a, a nobody. There was never a task list. There was never you gotta do this, 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 and this. The, the, the one thing that, that was clearly defined was the first two years. You get authentic U.S. documentation and get a job, any kind of job, and then we'll take it from there. Well, the take it from there was actually uh, the plan was to to move me uh, back to Europe uh, and set me up with a, uh, a business so that I could then return with some wealth back to the United States and and you know be probably would be considered upper middle class where I could you know join a country club and mingle with people who were important so so my my focus was political intelligence all right i was sort of trained to gather political information get close to decision makers with uh, decision makers in the foreign policy realm or at least people who would influence those decisions uh, but it, there was really no plan that says well this is how you go about this you just get to know it was very fuzzy you know just make as many contacts as you can and and you know move up in uh, in society the problem was that Plan A didn't function. We, uh, I was not able to acquire a passport. Uh, the uh, the a- passport agent uh, who looked at my application um, had some doubts. Actually, it's a quote. He said, uh, "Sir, we have some some concerns about the your identity. Would you please fill out this extra uh, this auxiliary questionnaire?" So I I looked at the questionnaire and. Uh, uh, the first question was, where did you go to high school? 
okay, boom, that's like an explosion. Uh, because if I fill that out, uh, I had a cover story that said I, I attended Peter Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan, but there would have been no record of Jack Barsky having gone because Jack Barsky died when he was five years old. So I knew that this wouldn't work. So I managed to grab my uh, my application and whatever documents I provided there. They were still lying in front of the guy and I walked out of there. So now I, we had to go to plan B and plan B, they sent me back to college. But, you know, it, this was plan B was a would have required a very, very long ramp up to get to a point where I would have been really personally useful. I got there, but by that time I wasn't. I had long since uh, uh, stopped working with the KGB. Yeah, right? and and I think this this sort of undermined your confidence in the competence of the KGB because up until the point you arrived in the US, you, you thought they were very effective and were giving you really good training. The undermining started right the pretty much the first day. I I was in New York. The mitigating circumstances were such that I had spent three months in in Canada on a practice trip just to go visit. And I had a couple of minor tasks to uh, execute there. First day in New York, first impression of New York. So I'm on a bus from LaGuardia Airport that goes right into midtown Manhattan at the Grand Central Station. And as we emerge in Manhattan, and I'm looking out the window and I said, my God, these, these streets are really narrow. I felt like squeezed uh, compared to those big uh, avenues that you find in Moscow. They, they, they're like five lanes each way and there's trees and, and the buildings are a little bit set back. It, it feels like sort of a grandiose kind of roadway. Well, <laughs> In, in Manhattan, you got them skyscrapers left and right, and they're much higher than the buildings in the east. And so they, you get the impression that Fifth Avenue was maybe only two lanes, but in fact it is five. <laughs> so that was my first impression. The very first indication of what was to come was the ignorance uh, uh, by the KGB with regard to what it's like to live in the United States. So they gave me uh, the addresses and names and addresses of three hotels where they figured th- these are hotels where you can you know, pay by the month, which is fundamentally cheaper. Uh, and I took a walk from Grand Central. One of those hotels was nearby within maybe 10 blocks to the south uh, in a nice neighborhood. I walk in there and I ask them, uh, so what's your what's your your monthly fee, uh, uh, and I got an answer. It was well over a thousand dollars, maybe fifteen hundred, and my cash reserves were down to about six thousand. I said to myself, "Well, that's not going to work. It's way too expensive." On top of it, I had the good sense of uh, thinking, "How do I justify spending that kind of money when?" I don't have a job. Where's my income coming from? So I had to go find something a lot cheaper. Uh, and uh, so that's the first time I complained about, you know, bad instructions. And 
there were other things that happened throughout uh, where I had to uh, I had to really learn what life is like in the United States. They didn't have a clue. Now, and the dangerous part of that statement is they didn't know that they didn't have a clue. They, they thought just because, you know, we worked for the United Nations for two, three, four, five years, and, uh, you know, we had contacts with Americans, and we, we may have recruited some people, and we went shopping in the stores, we took the subway. That doesn't mean anything. You never applied for a job. Mm. Uh, you, you never pretended to be one of them. I had to just slowly learn, uh, and it took altogether about close to five years for me to really become comfortable as an American. Again, that goes to the uh, the claim that I made that they picked the right guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> I got, also got lucky a couple of times, you know, but but you know, I I pretty much was on my own because I very quickly knew that the instructions that they gave me, the the few that I still got through uh, um, the radio transmissions, were useless. Uh, so I just made my own decisions, and then I told him what I did decide. And I was never overridden, never uh, criticized for doing that. Yeah, yeah, because you mentioned that you, in in later life, you met somebody who had also been an illegal in the U.S. who'd got recalled during the 1988 scare. Um, yeah, did did he correct. Did he sort of share the same difficulties that he'd had as well in, in terms of, you know, he, his training didn't really cover a lot of the scenarios he was faced with. Well, I had one day with him and his wife, and there wasn't enough time in the right. day to, yeah. to talk about everything because he came to the U.S. as a married individual. Uh, I never asked him because he's still sort of private, but I, I understand that he might be working on his memoir now. I never asked him, for instance, what was your cover story? He now speaks English with an accent, uh, and um, most likely he had a he had a different cover story. Uh, he may have, you know, sold himself as some a Czech or some or somebody from Austria who immigrated. Yeah. Uh, and I, and, but the one thing I know that he got much better training than me. He, he trailed me by five years. And, uh, you know, for instance, he, uh, he had this wonderful opportunity to travel through a whole bunch of all, uh, Eastern European countries, all expenses paid with an American, for, forced American passport. <laughs> that's, that's great training, man. If you, yeah. you, you get you get to go to Budapest in those days. As an American, you obviously have to have hard cash. You know, you lived a good life. <laughs> yeah. And I said yeah. to them, I hate, I really hate you. On top of it, this guy never had any task other than establishing himself. They had no other task, no, no, uh, no spotting uh, potential rec recruits, no issuing reports about what Americans thinking, no special uh, tasks, nothing. Uh, and he, he spent five years, him and his wife, he's back to being a German. 
that's, that's a big difference because I yeah. took a, a whole lot longer. I, I spent a whole lot longer in the country. I don't consider myself German anymore in terms of who I am today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, uh, if he does publish those memoirs and he wants to come on a very popular cold war podcast, then, um, do send him in my direction, Jack. I, I, I will certainly do so. <laughs> he still speaks, speaks English, of course. And his wife yeah. would, would make a, a nice, a nice addition. And he has, uh, a few twists and turns to his story, which are like, uh, you know, that'd be good for a movie too. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Was there any other faulty advice that the KGB gave you? The next one was what kind of a job I should be able to look into. Uh, that advice was also dead wrong. So eventually I became my own expert and they recognized that I knew more than any of those guys because whatever decision I made that went against what was recommended, they readily accepted. So they must have put a lot of trust in you. Yes, that, they did. At that point. Yes, they did. And how were you communicating back to them? Were, were you receiving messages via a number station? Yeah, numbers, but it was uh, not spoken. It was Morse code. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time training uh, uh, Morse code. I was told that that's safer in terms of the quality uh, the spoken word is when when the signal is weak, maybe more difficult to decipher than the the dits and the das that goes with Morse code. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> once a week, every Thursday at nine fifteen in the evening. That's when it, it never failed. Once a week for ten years at nine fifteen in the evening. I complained about that too because that established a pattern which was not good because I meant Jack is Jack is never available on Thursday. <laughs> That's like really silly. And I, but they, they told me, yeah, well, we can't change it, whatever. I'm guessing they, uh, uh, they were using Cuba, uh, Cuban resources and didn't have full control over those. Right. Right. And how did you communicate back to them? Yeah. Well, with snail mail, right. Secret, secret writing, Letters, um, I was uh, limited to two pages per letter. And you you would uh, write sort of an open letter, dear so-and-so, and, you know, you make things up. And I'm pretty good at making things up, you know. I, it, it looked like there was an ongoing correspondence with that individual. And then on top of that, you uh, put a secret message. There's not a lot of information you can put on two pages uh, of paper. Uh, particularly it had to be in, you know, in sort of block printed letters and any kind of information that had, uh, uh, that had uh, names, addresses and so forth in there had to be encrypted. So and on top of it, every three months I had to give a detailed finance report, believe it or not. Uh, so the real estate that I had available to me, uh, I had in the beginning, I had two of what we call con in the business convenience addresses. I had two of them. Uh, and I, that means once a month I could, uh, I could mail a letter to one or, and the other. So in other words, I had four pages that I could work with occasionally when I had way too much to, to transmit, uh, I would, uh, write 
this down on paper, photograph the paper, and then we would, uh, I would uh, uh, hand over the uh, the undeveloped cartridge in a in a dead drop operation. That happened, I think, twice or three times. Initially, you you start work as a as a bike messenger, which is the only work you can get, and that's a very arduous role. But eventually, you you work your way up, and and uh, well, you're studying as well, aren't you? And you managed to get a job as a computer programmer. I did. Uh, <clears throat> I I went back to college based on the fact that you know uh, the plan A didn't work. Plan B was to get a degree, <clears throat> and I picked, and I think it was the right pick, I picked uh, uh, computer systems a, as a major, and I managed to get an entry-level job as a programmer, and uh, did rather well. That's not surprising. Uh, so within a couple of years, I, you know, I was promoted several times, and I was well-established. And that, that was a time when uh, my direction was slightly changed for the first time i was asked to uh see if i can steal some technology uh, and i still remember that the meeting that i had with an agent from a different department and he he was quite honest with me and he says hey listen we got a problem we're falling behind technologically you know we we need we need to catch up so whatever whatever you can get your hands on let's see if we if we can get it now the easiest uh, the easiest matter to transmit uh, and, and hand over to the to the Soviets would have been software. You know, you yeah. computers computers were rather bulky in those days. <laughs> we're talking about IBM mainframes. Uh, so and I managed to copy one sizable software that was widely used and probably is still used as a. Uh, as a foundation for uh, running enterprises, I kind of doubt that it was very useful for the Soviets because it it only works if you have the the processes in place and it works in a capitalist environment, not necessarily in a planned economy. Mm-hmm. So, but at least I tried. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And d- during this period, you uh, met somebody else in the U.S. as well, didn't you? Your first U.S. wife. Yeah, you, you can't live a normal life as a, you know, as an American, as an undercover agent, without socializing, without having, uh, you know, female companionships. And so I met this really good-looking young woman who appeared to be very, very safe uh, to be somewhat intimate with because she. She was originally from uh, South America, and she wouldn't know, she wouldn't find out, you know, that there was something not quite right about me in terms of, like, you know, my birth and and, and my whole backstory and so forth. Uh, <laughs> but then I found out that she was illegal in the country. And so here started an interesting journey, and, and I, I had... Pity on her. I liked her a lot, and uh, I, you know, I, I said, okay, you know, let's see if I can help you. And indeed, uh, we married, and uh, I applied for a green card on on her behalf, and it all worked because I had the proper do- documentation necessary for that. 
Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And then if she became pregnant... Mm, and that changed my life. And before we we cover that, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, how are you dealing with these effective three different lives mentally, where one, you're a KGB agent, the other one, you're married to somebody in the US, and the third one, you're married to somebody in the GDR? At one word, compartmentalization. I mean, literally, I had a uh, a manufactured dual personality, and even today, uh, I have a hard time translating between English and, and and German. I'm fluent in both languages, but don't make me translate. the the the, the sections of my brain that that uh, contain the the vocabulary of the two languages don't talk to each other very well. And so my my American and German ego didn't talk to each other. And, and I have pretty much proof for that in terms of behaviors that the, the German was engaged in, that the American wasn't, and vice versa. That's, you know, to a point I've been able to, like, bring the two together, but there's still, there's still a residual impact of, of, of that of that dual personality that, that, you know, in, in my case, it was almost impossible not to develop. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I guess trying to manage that relationship with your wife in the GDR must've been really difficult being only able to see her perhaps, or see her and your son perhaps once a year. Well, here's, here's the, the sad part of it. Uh, I love this woman dearly. But over time, uh, she, she, she was never my focus. And that, that's really, if she had been, I wouldn't have left for the U.S. She was just there and convenient to go back to. That's a horrible thing to, to admit, but it is what it is. And uh, so... I hadn't. I never had a problem leaving. I was happy to arrive, but you know when it was time. You know because I I visited. Uh, I, every two years I went back to Moscow and I, <clears throat> I I met her and then later on her and my son. Uh, I was glad to arrive and you know bring a bunch of presents and uh, and you know embrace her and kiss her and be nice to her and love her. But I had never, never had a problem leaving, and that 
because I was so darn cold inside and, and selfish, because I still, deep down inside, I sort of knew that I was serving a higher cause. That eventually became rationalization because that cause, you know, became rather diluted the longer I lived in the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And with your US wife, the birth of Chelsea, your daughter, yeah. changes your perspective, I was going to say massively, but it's even more important than that. Yeah, there's no, the word is pretty good, but it, it as radical as it gets, <laughs> because, and I think uh, there's a lot of men who can relate to that. When we experience in person the birth of a child and watch that child, and in my case, it's a little girl, right, grow up. What what I experienced, what what I tell people is like a a a massive attack of unconditional love. I had no idea that I had that in me. I had no idea what that was, and so that overrode eventually that emotion. Overrode every selfish bone in my body, because when I decided to stay in the U.S. when I was supposed to go back. Uh, there was nothing in it for me other than being able to take to take the risk and hopefully be able to take care of this child. She's now 33 years old, and and we're both really glad that I stayed. Hmm. So you carry on your work for the KGB through to 88, and then you get a message from them. Yeah, I got the message that I that I should urgently leave the country. We had a we had an emergency plan. I was supposed to go to Canada, from which uh, place they would have exfiltrated me back to Moscow because they had good reason. I never found out what the reason was uh, to suspect that I was now under investigation. The reason that I know that they really believed it is because a friend of mine, now a friend of mine, who was also an illegal at the time in the United States, same time I was there, was also called back at the same time. And then three months later, they sent him back because false alarm. Anyway, but I didn't know this. And this this is when I had to make that decision. My Chelsea was like... uh, uh, she was 18 months old, and I go and I desert this child, or I stay taking a whole bunch of risks, including you know being subject to the wrath of the KGB, uh, who I knew wasn't taking this kind of insubordination very light lightly. That's that was that was the moment of decision, and I you know. Chelsea won. <laughs> yeah, and in, in the book, it's interesting because you 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 the decision doesn't sound as clear cut because you actually go to the dead drop. Yes. To pick up your exfiltration documents, except and money. they're money. not there. Yeah, and the money, <laughs> and 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 they're not there. So you know, you, all sorts of thoughts were going through your mind, but obviously Chelsea won out in the end. 
Yes, and you're right. This was not clear cut, and and if I, you know, if I can put a number on it, it was fifty one forty nine. It was I was constantly going back and forth, back and forth, because I did have a family in Germany, you know, and so that was that was the biggest counterweight. Uh, but eventually, Chelsea won out, and it uh, it you know uh, I'm a, I'm a believing Christian now, and I think that somehow God uh had a had a play in this had had a had a hand in this to just nudge me in the right direction yeah yeah and so you're going into work and you notice a red dot uh on your way in which is a sign again from the KGB to say you have to come back this was the first signal that says hey emergency i i had no clue what that meant hmm. and i ignored that one and then uh then uh, a week later, I got more of an explanation in in the radio transmission, saying, "Well, we have reason to believe that the FBI is uh, about to arrest you. You must come home." Uh, and they, I ignored that too. And eventually, somebody actually came up to me, and uh, uh, a Russian agent, uh, uh, and uh, very briefly just whispered into my ears, "You got to come home, or else you're dead." That's a verbal quote, quote that I will never forget. And I, that's pretty much when it was uh, decision time because at that point I couldn't play for time anymore. Up until that point, there could have been all kinds of things wrong. I could have been in a hospital, the radio could have been broken, blah, blah, blah. But here's the guy who saw me, talked to me, so now they knew that I knew that they knew. <laughs> so it was decision time. Yeah, and you come up with a, a quite brilliant plan to uh, escape the clutches of, of the KGB by playing on uh, an area that you know they are extremely fearful of and would be believable. Yeah, HIV AIDS. Clearly that was, a, as I indicated before, a death sentence in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, there was no cure. There was nothing that really prevent you from dying from this, and they believed it. Uh and I, I had reason to believe that they didn't know about the child. They didn't know about my marriage. They, they stayed away from me. They, uh, they did not ever check on anything that I told them. They didn't know that I graduated as valedictorian from college, which I would have been reprimanded for that, for sure. So uh, they had every reason to believe what I told them because it didn't make, based on what they knew, it wouldn't have made any sense for me to come up with that lie because all the good things for me were back in the, in, in East Germany or Moscow because the year before I had received the the Order of the Red Banner, uh, second highest decoration of uh, the Soviet Union. So there, there was just no way for them not to believe it, and they yeah. didn't believe Because they continued paying your wife, I think, and... In, in, yeah, they, they, in the they gave us some, some of the savings. They gave us some of the, yes, they gave us some of the savings. I asked them in my goodbye letter, please, you know, give my, my German wife the money that was saved on my account. Based on my son uh, telling me that she received a significant amount of money, probably not everything, uh, probably some, an agent kept some of that for themselves. And 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 so your your career progression continues, and you're you're living in 
rural Pennsylvania. Yeah. With uh, your wife and then two kids, because Jesse, your your son, is born as well. But in the meantime, you're not aware that a certain Russia called Vasily Matrokin or Matrokin, he worked for the KGB and has taken a load of files to British intelligence because um, the US intelligence rather rashly turned him down. Well, this is what happened. I was told uh, he, he actually went to the U.S. embassy on a on a Saturday, and they had a junior CIA person uh, talk to him, and he said, "Well, this is old stuff. We're not interested in it." <laughs> now, now there's a career limiting move. <laughs> yeah, I would I I would say so, but I the British obviously. Uh, yeah, MI six says, "Come on in. Let's have a cup of tea." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, in these files, there is a mention of a certain Jack Barsky, which then okay. end, ends up with the with the FBI. At this point, you're not, you know, you're not aware that the FBI is on your trail or indeed that they've uh, bought the house next door. <laughs> At that point, it was like eight, nine years after I, I had resigned. Uh, I had fundamentally, I had forgotten that I ever was an agent. I had I had put my German past out of my mind. I knew that I would never, ever go back to Germany. So, and I clearly didn't, uh, I, I stopped taking all these precautions uh, to see whether somebody is following me because the, the, the original communication uh, by the KGB that the FBI was investigating me was wrong. Therefore, I wasn't doing anything else. No way that, uh, you know, I was just a private citizen. And I was completely clueless, clueless that I was under investigation for about two years, two, two and a half years before the FBI introduced themselves. Yes. And, and the way they introduced themselves, and again, I would highly recommend Jack's book. It really gives a lot more detail than we're having in this conversation but you're driving home one evening and at the uh, toll booth as you come off the the motorway a state trooper steps out and asks you to pull over and then out the corner of your eye you see another man who then proceeds to put an fbi identification in front of you how did you feel at that moment numb and I, I can only uh, repeat what uh, the agent who produced the FBI document uh, saw. He said, I went white as a sheet. So I guess all the blood went out of my brain, head, and I, for, for a while I couldn't think. But I recovered rather quickly. So, you know, they asked me to, to uh, join them in their vehicle. And as I step in there, I see his... Uh, his, uh, his partner in the back who was sitting next to me in the back seat and he had a gun strapped to his ankle. So, you know, there was a, was a reminder that this was real, mm. but, you know, and this is confirmed by the agent who detained me. And I, I uh, emphasize it was detention, not arrest. The two first sentences that I uttered, the first one was, am I under arrest? And the answer was no. And then I said, so what took you so long? 
<laughs> it is that's what it very, is. You know, that's I, a very I, cool answer, isn't it? Really. <laughs> well, you know what? That was my survival instinct because immediately I knew that I had to make them like me. Because if I'm a jerk, I could easily wind up in jail. And, you know, it's, it's, it isn't that hard for me to pretend to be likable. I actually have that in me. That, that's one of, one of the qualifications to, to become an agent, right? You know, people need to sort of uh, be able to relate to you. So and instinctively, I, play, I played that card. And it worked. <laughs> Yeah, because I guess, you know, when, when that FBI agent stepped out, what would have been going through your mind is the KGB think I'm dead, so they're not going to get me out of this. I'm going to go to jail, and my wife and kids I'm not going to see for maybe 20-odd years or something like that, I guess. Well, the, yeah, the danger was that, uh, A, I go to jail, nobody will get me out uh, because I'm dead. Uh, Germany ha- had no reason to you know, act on my behalf. Uh, and so the danger was that uh, I go to jail, my wife gets deported because she uh, got the, her, this, her citizenship was uh, acquired based on my documentation, which was illegal. Mm. And the kids would wind up in an orphanage someplace, wardens of the state. That was the extreme danger and and that you know i i didn't i didn't spend a lot of time thinking about this because that would have this would have destroyed all of us yeah and and in your i'm going to call it a debriefing with the fbi Mm -hmm. presumably they were asking you how you had communicated or did they, they thought you were still active at this point didn't they that time, at that time, they pretty much concluded that I wasn't anymore because they had enough time to watch me over uh, two and a half years. And uh, as uh, FBI agent Joe Riley would tell you, you can, you can learn a lot about a person just by watching them. And he did do a lot of watching. He also uh, spent time going through my garbage uh, in the summertime and complained about it because it smelled. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, for a while they thought I might still be active, but uh, they, they determined when they finally uh, made the move, they p- were pretty sure I wasn't, not 100%, because they had a, a whole bunch of agents stationed around the area because they let me go home. And uh, I was uh, introduced to the the head of the team, you know, the surveillance team. Uh, and this guy was pretty adamant and very strong. And I said, "By the way, if you think of running, we got every intersection covered." So don't even. And you know, I was not saying it because I didn't want to be a wise guy, but I was thinking to myself, "Where the heck am I going to run to?" Yeah. Yeah, because didn't they have a problem with a Cuban friend of yours that was renting a room to a Soviet diplomat? Yeah, yeah, that that (laughs) came out after I went public. They they actually, when they found out that uh, I was working uh, rather closely with a Cuban national who had immigrated with his parents, who had rented an apartment to a, a... 
a Soviet uh, diplomat, some some of them thought international conspiracy, and apparently my friend uh, was subjected to a rather harsh interview, and he he got really ticked off. Yeah, <laughs> whole thing. Uh, that that obviously was a dead end, uh, but 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 for a while, some folks in the FBI thought they they were like really uh, about to catch a real big fish. Well, that fish turned out to be a minnow. <laughs> Espionage wise, yeah. And how, how did your wife react to the news that you were uh, a, a well a former KGB agent? Well, she actually knew, and this is this is actually what triggered the the detention. They had the house bugged, and there was a uh, was a moment when uh, her and I, my wife and I, had an argument, and I was just trying to make clear to her that you know I'm really on her side, and and I said to her, by the way, let me tell you something. This is what I wish to be with you and Chelsea. I used to be a Russian agent, and I sort of defected. And they had they they were listening to this. The FBI was listening to this, so they had my confession on tape. So she already knew she was extremely uncomfortable with this. Even when the FBI then came to visit the house and talked to her very nicely, she didn't know how to process that. And so I think the whole this this whole thing really put a death nail into into the marriage because she was already not a very trusting person, and now she knew she was living with an ex agent who cannot be trusted. And uh, you know that kind of trust, uh, once it's lost, is very difficult to establish or reestablish. Yeah, yeah, and. You you waited until Chelsea was eighteen until you told her. What what was her reaction to that news? Well, she was like, "Wow!" <laughs> uh, and you know, and I told her that she changed my life. Well, well, how, how much more of more proof do you need that your your father really loves you? You know, that's uh, and you know that bond is indestructible we can always go back to that and that's you know you know it's it's one thing to say i love you it's another thing to you know throw yourself in front of a bus survive and i didn't throw myself in front of a bus but it was the equivalent okay yeah and and she she became quite curious around her half brother in Germany yeah, as well. Yeah, when uh, sometime later, after I disclosed my past, uh, past to her, I told her that she actually had a half brother in Germany, and uh, now she was like on a mission to find that fellow. Uh, and initially, she she failed until he wound up on the internet uh, because of the the institution where he got his doctorate uh, required him to establish a web identity and that's where she found him, sent him an email and uh, you know, with some questions are you uh, is your first name this and uh, do you have a dad had disappeared and and, uh, so he sent an email back and it started with uh, hello little sister 
So that was that was the beginning of uh, connecting the two pieces uh, of, of my family. So now I have a picture of uh, all four of my adult children, because I have a little one who wasn't available at the time, uh, being together with me in the same picture. And that yeah. that is Chelsea's achievement. I was deathly afraid of uh, facing the son that I had deserted. You know, there's one thing to to be brave and there's another thing to be occasionally a coward. And in that respect, I was a, a big coward. I was, I was just, I had nothing, there was nothing I could have told, I thought, told the fellow why I did what I did. Well, when when he met me in Chelsea, we were just sitting there in, in my living room and I explained the situation. And within an hour, he said, I understand. And that was the beginning of, uh, you know, connecting again. He calls me dad now. Wow. That's a huge thing to say to you, isn't it? After, you know, oh, yeah. think, thinking that you were effectively dead. Right. Um, uh <laughs> <laughs> bit bit lost for words there but when when you told uh jesse because there's a great story you told me about him yeah i was a manager at the time and so <laughs> they in the u.s they have this uh take your child to work day it used to be take your daughter and then you can take your son so i took my son one day and we were spent time in the office and there's a telephone, a computer and a, and a whiteboard and people walk in and out. And that's all he saw of, of my unglamorous job. So I overheard him talk to his friend. He said, my dad doesn't de- really do any work. Uh, you know, he just, he sits in the office all day makes phone calls and, uh, uh, and, and draws things on the whiteboard. I don't know what, what, what he does. And all of a sudden when, when I, sat down with him and Chelsea and when he was 18 on his 18th birthday, uh, Chelsea and I uh, told him about my past and his eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger because this, uh, this faceless, uh, useless desk jockey <laughs> had become an, a man of, of intrigue an international undercover agent. I mean, like he was so excited, you know, that's a boy reaction. I can imagine that scene. I mean, it just goes to show how little you actually know about your parents' past when you actually think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, you never know. No. You're hiding. no, exactly, exactly. And I, and I love the fact that Joe Riley, the FBI agent that uh, didn't arrest you but uh, detained you, is now your golfing buddy, isn't he? Yeah, he was while we were still living in the same area. Now that I live in Georgia and he is still in Pennsylvania, we're not playing golf anymore, but he's still a friend. I last, uh, I was at his house was last December. Uh, we, we still talk regularly. And uh, he wrote a really, really, really nice afterward for my book uh, that uh, uh, I cherish a lot. Uh, yeah, and he he did. You're, you're, you're absolutely right there. And, have you been back to to Germany since to connect with your old friends or or yeah. anybody? Four times, four times. Uh, the first time, as soon as I got my citizenship, I made a beeline to Germany, and I it was a trip down memory lane 
trip down into my past, connected with lots and lots of different people, including my first girlfriend, um, who the, the scene when we met is, is described in the book. It's a, it's a phenomenal movie scene. How two people in their 60s meet again after so many years when one had dumped the other, who then decided decides that that really was a mistake. <laughs> it, is, it is a lovely scene. I'm not, I didn't make it up. It, it happened exactly the way I'm describing it. And, you know, I met a lot of people. And, uh, and then the second time I came with, uh, uh, with uh, CBS 60 Minutes, and then I went again for a class reunion where I was able to tell the first girl I had a crush on <laughs> after so many years, I said, by the way, the only reason I came to this reunion is because I wanted to tell Yuta that I had a crush on her. And she spontaneously said, you should have told me I would have come to the United States with you. And then the last one was uh, a bit over a year ago when I was able to take my current wife and my last one and uh, my then seven-year-old to Germany because I had a, a, a public appearance, a paid appearance. And your... your... East German wife is presumably she didn't want any further contact with you. We had one phone conversation, and uh, it was primarily her uh, saying what was on her mind, and I. It was my duty to listen. There was not much I could I could say in response because I in that relationship I was the guilty party. No explanation. No, there was there was nothing I could say. There was some indication that she might actually want to stay in contact, but she reversed that, and uh, that's the end of that. There's no more. There's no more conversation. No more contact. People always ask me, would I do it again? Did I make the right decision? And, you know, you have to, you know, you look back on your life. The decisions that I made were based on what I knew at the time, whether whether it was perfect knowledge or not, what I knew, and was also based on who I was, which was not a mature individual. And I can only say this this was not in any way manipulative or planned or or intended to harm somebody but i didn't see the uh, the long term impact on others but as, as well as myself you know you don't come out of this this uh, kind of life undamaged uh so bottom line is the answer is always i yes i would but i'm glad it turned out the way it did. That is a great line to end on. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters, help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. 
If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Thanks again to all our financial supporters of the podcast, but a special thanks to our Politburo level Patreons, who are Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, and Jeffrey Jones, who are supporting us at thirty US dollars per month. Thank you. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com/slash/donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter. You'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.